Oh, and Lord, we bow our hearts before you. You are the anthem. Lord, you are our theme song. Mm-hmm. You are, are the name that we, we repeat and turn to over and over again. Because you alone have the words of life. And Lord, that is why we're here, to learn of you. So give us the words of life today, Lord. Mm-hmm. As we open up your word, please speak into our hearts. Pour into us. We are empty and we need to be filled. Fill us overflowing with you, Holy Spirit. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. 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 Why don't you guys go ahead and greet each other this morning. Cheers. Welcome, everyone. Good to be with you this morning. Uh, If you want to turn your Bibles to Leviticus chapter 1. Pastor Ray is with his old Marine buddies uh, in Illinois, so they're having a little reunion uh, on the Labor Day weekend. So keep them in your prayers that the Lord would use them to minister to these guys that he was in combat with, Um, you know, that God could open their eyes. You know, our lives are li- living testimonies of what he's done, and I think, you know, you can see that in Ray's life, and, uh, and you know, they'll be able to see that pretty clearly, what the Lord's done. And, um, but So it's like our, our, our life speaks of what Christ has done in us, and sometimes more than our words can speak, right? Our words are kind of an expression of how we're feeling in a moment, but our lives, people are observing us all the time, and we all have that testimony, and the Bible says the testimony of Jesus Christ is the spirit of prophecy. Everything about prophecy spoke of Jesus, spoke forward to him, um, you know, in the Old Testament. And then also looking forward with Revelation, <clears throat> and even as we read this morning in Leviticus, all of this spoke of Jesus. And so we're going to look at that this morning, of how you know, it was both symbolic, the burnt offering, and it was a type of Jesus. So we're going to read, and then we'll pray. We'll read through the whole chapter. Now the Lord called to Moses and spoke to him from the tabernacle of meeting, saying, Speak to the children of Israel and say to them, When any, of, any one of you brings an offering to the Lord, uh, you shall bring your offering of the livestock of the herd and of the flock. If his offering is a burnt, off, uh, uh, burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him offer a male without blemish. He shall offer it of his own free will at the door of the tabernacle of meeting before the Lord. And then he shall put his hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him. He shall kill the bull before the Lord and the priests 
barren sons shall sprinkle shall bring the blood and sprinkle the blood all around on the altar that is by the door of the tabernacle of meeting and he shall skin the burnt offering and cut it into pieces and the sons of Aaron the priest shall put fire on the altar and lay the wood in order of the fire order on the fire then the priests Aaron's sons shall lay the parts the head and the fat in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar but he shall wash its entrails and its legs with water. And the priest shall burn all on the altar as a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. If his offering is of the flocks of the sheep or the goats as a burnt sacrifice, he shall bring a male without blemish. He shall kill it on the north side of the altar before the Lord, and the priests, Aaron's sons, shall sprinkle its blood all around on the altar. And he shall cut it in pieces with its head and its fat, and the priest shall lay them in order on the wood that is on the fire upon the altar. But he shall wash the entrails and the legs with water. Then the priest shall bring it all and burn it on the altar. It is a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. And if the burnt sacrifice of this offering to the Lord is of the birds, then he shall bring his offering of turtle doves or young pigeons. The priest shall bring it to the altar, wring ring off its head, and burn it on the altar. Its blood shall be drained out the side of the altar, and he shall remove it, its crop with its feathers and cast it aside on the altar on the east side into the place of ashes, for ashes. Then he shall split it at its wings, but shall not divide it completely. And the priest shall burn it on the altar, on the wood that is on the fire. It's a burnt sacrifice, an offering made by fire, a sweet aroma to the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, uh, Lord, thank you that you provided a way um, that's better than these, the, the sacrifices that we read in Leviticus. And yet even in those offerings and sacrifices, we see your provision. And um, we see your blessing upon man. Uh, with a looking forward to redemption and to atonement and, uh, Lord, substitution, Lord, where you, you are offered in our place, and, and we thank you for that. Help us to understand, Lord, uh, these, some of these things are too great for us, Lord, and we need your help and understanding, and we know that your scriptures say that, Lord, you can reveal these things to babes, Lord. Uh, you can re- reveal them to children, Lord. Um, and give insight without having um, a ton of education, but Lord, your Holy Spirit can educate us. And we pray you'd do that this morning. You'd give us insight into these things. And Lord, help our attitudes to be ones of uh, thanks and praise to you, Father, as we understand how great a work you've done on the cross for us. And uh, we thank you for our time together this morning. Bless our fellowship, bless our interactions, and Lord, Lord, if there's anyone here, Lord, they, they, they're afar off from you, and they know it, and the guilt, uh, Lord, if you, if you can minister to that heart, Lord, the guilt of sin just is always before them, that you can minister to that heart uh, and, and touch them and show them, Lord, that through Christ you've made provision. In Jesus' name, amen. So the burnt offering, um, in a way, the sacrificial system is kind of strange to us because we don't see it, you know, 
we eat a lot of meat <laughs> in our culture for the most part, uh, although we see kind of an increase in vegetarianism and everything, but, um, you know, we don't see animal sacrifice per se, but it actually still does go on today. Um, and I think it's a little bit strange to our Western minds. Um, um, but I think it's also important to look at historically, you know, what animal sacrifice was like in, in ancient culture in the sense of not necessarily the Jewish culture, but the culture at large. Um, and I think in today's culture, I mentioned that, you know, we sometimes see animal sacrifice, although it's rare. There's a, there's a festival in southern Nepal called um, God Himai, and it's the name of some goddess that they sacrifice, and they have this huge sacrifice to this goddess every year, and it's like a big festival. And if you've ever been in, uh, like, everyone takes part in, like, that part of Asia, everyone takes part in these religious festivals. Uh, I work with a lot of folks from India, and they don't have that particular festival there, but they're always, it seems like they're always celebrating uh, these festivals, and they all get together, and um, it's a big celebration. You've probably seen the, the things in India where they're throwing, I think it's, uh, what is it called? Uh, they're throwing those colors at each other, and it's like everywhere, right? Um, holy, holly it's called, something like that. But in any case, this particular festival, God Him I, you know, they, they sacrifice hundreds of thousands of animals all in this festival, and it's a giant slaughter, right? And, you know, the, the animal rights activists, activists are kind of in a, a tizzy about this sort of thing, and they, they're always sort of, um, you know, standing up against it, speaking out against it. And, you know, for, the, for a person who doesn't understand the religious background or, uh, of it, you know, and, and maybe they have pets and everything, it kind of makes sense. Or they have farm animals, it makes sense, you know, and they take care of animals. It's like, you know, they, they see these animals as having feelings and emotions. And, you know, the Bible even says, the man shall regard the life of his, of his animal, right? Um, but anyways, it's this interesting conflict. And I think part of it is on the, the more modern Western mindset is just the lack of understanding of where the whole sacrificial system comes from. But then on the, you know, on the more religious side, a lot of it is rooted, actually it goes back to Noah, and even before that with Adam and Eve, um, because the whole world came from Noah, as the Bible says, like they descended from Noah, and Noah was given a sacrifice where he was able to take part in the sacrifice and eat of the animal as a result, and it was God's provision for Noah. Just like with Adam and Eve, God provided them for their nakedness out of the sacrifice of an animal. God provided for Noah in a world that was barren of all vegetation and any sort of food source to be able to provide them food through the animals that were sacrificed after the rainbow was shown to them and the promise was given. And so all cultures stem from that, and you see animal sacrifice in so many cultures, but it, like so many things, it gets distorted. It gets distorted as it gets away from the truth of it, of what it was for. It was God's provision. It was God's way of providing for man. Um, and also to show and look forward to something better. 
that was to come. It was never to take away sins, but it was a covering for sin, right? And so the distortion continues on even to with this festival. And oftentimes, you know, with idolatry and with paganism and with the worship of other gods and sacrificing towards other gods, the motives and the heart behind it changes and becomes something else. It becomes how do I satiate this God so that I can be in his good will. So it's what I do to satiate the God um, that I'm, you know, offering this sacrifice to. And to get, bene- to get sort of like, uh, it's almost like a superstitious benefit from that God. And we can take those same thoughts and ideas and look at the scriptures and not see what the purpose of these offerings were for. And I think the world does that with the Bible. Like, I think that the mind that's against God distorts, you know, that they look at God and the sacrifices as this bloodthirsty God. Like, why does God need a blood sacrifice? Why does he need death, right? And, you know, I was even in an, (laughs) it's funny, because I was even in an argument with my friend. We were talking about, for some reason this came up, and I was explaining to him about, you know, God's justice. And, but he couldn't get over the fact that why does God need, like from him looking at the Bible and looking at all the sacrifices, why does God need so much blood? You know, it's like the God of blood. It's kind of how they look at him. And, now, but the reality is God gave, a, God gave a promise to Adam and Eve that when, if you fall or if you eat of this fruit, you will surely die. So they, fall, they fell into sin and death entered in. And that, the word death there is more of an eternal death. They didn't die immediately, but it was also a physical death. And so we know that death is, an, is, death is the wages of sin, the Bible says. Free gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord, but the wages of sin is death. We know that the life is in the blood. Leviticus also talks about that, that the life of a, of a living being is literally in the blood. You take away the blood and it will die, right? The blood is what nourishes the, rema- the whole entirety of the body. It brings all the nutrients, the oxygen, and you know, the energy, all of it to all the cells of the body. You take away the blood, all the different organs and, and the cells that make up those organs will die. And so, you know, that my friend, going back to my friend there and that example, like just a misunderstanding and, the, and God's wrath is really... It's the, it's God's, God has been patient with us. Remember, from God's perspective, he did not have to give us any way back to him. I think that's really important. There didn't need to be a sacrifice from his perspective. But he had originally planned that from the foundation of the world, to give some way back. Um, and, And I'm setting the stage here so we can look at Leviticus in the right mindset. Because, again, oftentimes we come with this wrong understanding. But we have to understand the nature of God's justice and his need for that 
uh, you know, you will surely die the wages of sin. And wages is an accounting term. You know, if you work a certain amount of hours, you have an agreement with your employer to be paid for those hours, right? And legally, they're um, bound to that to pay you for the hours that you work. It's an accounting term for wage, the wages of sin. And they used it for the Romans to pay, you know, the, the soldiers, right? Whether they were paid with animals or with food or with lodging or with money, that they were given their right wages, that same word that's used there in Romans chapter 6. And so God has, um, has to carry out his wrath as that stored up waiting and patience of that, you know, he's waiting for man to turn back to him so that there could be some way of being that being paid, right, that wage being paid. And he's waiting, and his waiting is where the wrath is being stored up. And I think the wrath has two aspects to it. There's the wrath of the world, on the world, the Christ-rejecting world. We saw that wrath with the flood, that God was being patient with the murderers of mankind, and then eventually he had to bring judgment. It had gotten so bad. So there's, the, there's this world standpoint, and we see that going to happen again with Revelation, that God's going to pour out his wrath upon a Christ-rejecting world, that he hasn't appointed us to wrath but to obtain mercy, but that the world itself will be judged by the wrath of God. It will be poured out the bold judgments. But we also see that God's wrath has to be, in an eternal sense, has to be, you know, yeah, yeah. So it has to be uh, comprehended. It has to be fulfilled in an eternal sense. And that is that, like he said to Adam and Eve from the beginning, that if you eat of this, you will surely die, an eternal death. That you would offend an eternal God, a loving God, a kind God, um, with a choice to basically reject him. And for God to allow that to go on is an offense in forever, because that's what it would be if he didn't have that wrath. It would be God allowing sin to continue for an eternity. Because his wrath is an a cessation and a judgment upon sin with death. And all of this, you guys can see ahead, right? All of this points to his son and what he would do pouring out his wrath upon his own son himself, right? That the love of God would be fulfilled, but also that his wrath would be fulfilled. And his wrath goes hand in hand with his love. And I think any of you guys have known someone who has struggled with something in their lives and you have been patient with them to endure and, you know, kind of see it through, know that you, you will never condone that thing that is harming them. But in your passion and love for them, you're patient with them, knowing that they won't immediately change all the time. Um, and so that reveals the true love you have for that person. That's <laughs> okay. And so God's, God's love is revealed and his wrath is revealed, and they're complementary to one another, that God would not allow sin to continue, but he would pour out his wrath, but also create a way for man to be redeemed, right, to be 
made whole again with him. So let's look at this burnt offering with that, all that in mind about this need for a sacrifice, for an offering that was, you know, worthy. And remember the, the sacrifices of the Old Testament, which we'll see pretty clearly with Hebrews when we get to there at the end, um, it could never make you, you know, free from sin. It could never take away sin. It could only cover it temporarily. So he says here, so let's look at the character of this sacrifice, the burnt offering. I think the burnt offering, there are other offerings, the sin offering, the trespass offering, the peace offering, the meal offerings. You know, there, there are others, but I think with the burnt offering, we see a very clear picture of Jesus in it. And I think it's important to see that type. And I think for the, for the people looking at it, there were the, the symbolism of it was kind of obvious, but the types of Jesus was not. Because when you have to go back to this time, Right? They didn't have the clear level revelation of who Jesus was. Now, the types of Jesus that we can see more clearly because we have the scriptures to illuminate it, to make it clear to us in the New Testament. So, you know, he spoke to Moses, and, you know, the burnt offering was something that was offered every day, twice a day. It was something that was a continual thing. It was also offered at various... Uh, of the, the feasts, and people could also do it willingly. So we'll, we'll kind of draw out some of the symbolism, uh, and then we'll go back and look at the types afterwards. Uh, but then he goes on and he says, whenever any of you in verse 2 brings an offering to the Lord, you shall bring an offering of the, the livestock of the herd and of the flock. And I think it's important to remember that everything for these folks was agric or you know agrarian it was they all had livestock i mean the measure of your va your like wealth was based on how much cattle you had um, i was actually talking to one of my friends he's he's a missionary here he come he used to come here but he's a missionary in kenya he's actually here visiting and he's engaged to a kenyan girl i hope he doesn't mind me sharing this but uh, when when you you know, kind of give up a dowry, you, you, you give them a certain number of animals, right? So, like, and one of my friends uh, that I met in Africa, actually, is Joe's friend, he, he, he shared the same thing, that when you marry a Kenyan girl, you have to give their family a certain amount of animals. And so we were talking about how many goats should, should he give them, you know? <laughs> Uh, it's just so foreign to us, right? I mean, we give diamonds, right? We give rocks. They give animals. <laughs> they probably think us giving diamonds is crazy, and we think giving animals for a wife is crazy, right? It's just different cultures. And so, you know, if you give, like, 100 goats, it's a pretty good gift. Um, so, you know, they look up highly to you if you do that. Um, and I kind of told him, you know, think about how much it cost you to buy a ring that you could afford for a girl here and buy that many animals. <laughs> um, so in any case, though, you know, they, they were, this is an agrarian society, so they, they, you know, they had animals and, you know, everything about what they had and what they owned was revolved around the animals that they had. So, you know, if, they, if their animals had a lot of babies that year, it was a good year, you know. And you could see the wealth of Abraham that was all based on his flocks. And even as, he, you know, 
as Lot looked out over the plains of Sodom, what was it that he saw that drew him to it? It was the fact that it was green and lush and that it was a great place for his animals to thrive. Whereas a desert, more arid place would be difficult because your animals could run out of the food, whether it's grass or vegetation. I mean, goats eat anything, but they got to eat something, right? Um, and so this agrarian society, you know, for them to offer something, it was both, it was akin to us giving money in a way, right? Money kind of, and, you know, cash, what we have in our savings account or how much we make a week, um, that's kind of the measure of our wealth, right? How much does that person make a year, right? And, you know, they talk about it a lot in the sports the sports world. I was just reading about the, the pitcher for the Yankees who makes 326 million probably every five years or six years, which is um, Garrett Cole, I think his name is. It's just insane amount of money, you know. What does that translate into an hourly wage? It's just, it's unfathomable, you know. Um, but it, it's all re related to how much the rest of society puts value in what they do. Um, they find what they do very important with sports. Um, so anyways, but they take the, uh, of their own herd and flock. And so in verse 3, if, this, if his offering is a burnt sacrifice of the herd, let him bring a male without blemish. And so he was to bring, you know, a male, and it was to have no problems with it. Like God didn't want them to bring, you know, the maimed or, you know, the, they had some flaw with them. He wanted them to bring the best of what they had. And, and I think it's both a type and a symbol, as I mentioned, the symbol being that it requires faith to bring an offering of the best that you have. Because you're giving something to an unseen God according to what he's, how he specified it in the scriptures and how it's been taught to you through the priests, through Moses. And you're doing it in faith. You're doing it by his word, by his direction. And it may, reminds me of Cain and Abel, right? Cain brought an offering of his, uh, you know, the harvest that he had, and Abel brought an offering of his herd, but it says specifically that Abel brought the best of what he had. It didn't say that with Cain. And I think with Cain and Abel, we see with Cain a veering off towards a more pagan understanding that I'm doing this to, to kind of please God so that God would be indebted to me. Whereas with Abel, we see the faith of what it's calling out here, that you to bring the best of what you have. And, we read that in Hebrews that Abel offered a better sacrifice than Cain because he did it by faith. And he's to do it with his own free will at the tabernacle of meeting. So the place that God had ordained, God had specified where this would happen. It had to happen at a specific spot with the tabernacle, which moved around, it would wherever the tabernacle was. Interestingly, with Later on, when the temple would be, later on with the, with the temple, um, that 
the tabernacle would basically be in a static place. It wouldn't change anymore. And interestingly enough, David, when David offered, um, what, was, what was the guy's name? It was a guy there that, or, Orin, or, Ornin or something, the fields of Ornin or something like that, I think his name was. He, he said, I will not do, you know, the, the guy was offering to, to give David the, this, these fields and, the, and the, the cattle that were there. And, and David's like, I won't do, offer God, because David wanted to offer a sacrifice. And he's like, I'm not going to do anything that's not going to cost me. So I'm going to pay the full price for it, whatever it is, right? So David bought it and offered it to the Lord. And actually, that was the place where God would set up. That's where Mount Moriah was. That's where um, the place where the temple would later be built on that, uh, you know, Mount Zion, where Jerusalem is, and, you know, the Temple Mount. And so David had purchased that, and he had offered it. And that was the place that God had ordained. And that actually happened before Solomon obviously built the temple. Um, but it's a picture of David doing by faith and ending up, because it was commanded that, God, that they would only offer these sacrifices where God had ordained it. So verse 4, he put, you're to put your hand on the head of the burnt offering, and it will be accepted on behalf to make atonement for him. So... You know, this is kind of that transference, right? He puts his hand, the person puts their hand on it, and there's some transaction that goes on there. And it's symbolic, I think, in the sense that nothing actually physically changed between the person and the animal. But just like when we pray for people, we lay on hands. Um, this idea of laying on of hands, that there's some sort of transfer. And here the idea is that there's a transfer of one's sin, one, and because later it says to make an atonement um, in verse 4, accepted on his behalf to make atonement for him, and then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And I think, too, with the putting on the hand, there was an identification with that animal. Like, there's this idea that this animal is representative of my sinfulness, and, and so he, the person making the offering, was to kill the animal, which he's giving of his own flock. There's an attachment there, and he kills it with his own hand. So he probably had to cut its throat. And it just makes a really bloody picture. But at the same time, with everything I said in mind that God was giving us, it was God's gracious way of giving us a way where he didn't have to. Remember, with Satan, he didn't give a way back to re be redeemed. But he was, this was God's gracious way of making, allowing us temporarily, in, in the Jewish culture, to temporarily have your sins covered. Because they had to do this all the time. This wasn't just a once-off thing, but it was a thing that would be continually done. Whether it was the burnt offerings being done every day, whether it was the sin offering that was offered by the high priest for all the people, it was a continual thing that had to be done. Um, but with him doing the killing, too, again, that identification, um, you know, it, 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 it's kind of here. It's like this animal and I now are connected because of this. Um, and I don't know how many of you guys have had to kill an animal before. I've actually, I think about it, I don't think I've ever killed an animal <laughs> 
um, intentionally. <laughs> I think I've hit a few frogs <laughs> over in, uh, you know, the north part of Webster. Sometimes they come out and, or, you know, other animals I've hit driving. So I haven't killed anything intentionally. But I can imagine doing it intentionally that there would be an emotion to it, I think. And it reminds me of Abraham offering up his own son, right, going up Mount Moriah. And then the ram being that sacrifice in place of his son, and then the relief that he didn't have to kill his son, but he could kill the ram instead. Just the, the sense of relief that this was delivering my son from the death that I was thought I was supposed to do, but God was giving him. Again, that's, that is literally the character of God in the sacrifice. It wasn't a bloodthirsty character. It wasn't the character of the pagan gods that we see. And remember, with pagan gods, the Bible says that when you offer to an idol, you're offering to demons, right? It says that in 1 Corinthians. So behind the pagan gods are actually demonic fallen angels. And so that, that makes it really easy to understand why it's become such a distortion, because Satan, he's the father of lies, and he distorts the truth to lead people astray. And how, if you look at all of the paganism over the thousands of years of human history, how many people have been led astray by a false sense of who God really is? Turning the, turning the image of God into the, the image of a man or a creature, a created thing, which is the idolatry that it talks about in Romans chapter 1. So he kills it, and he, Aaron's sons, they take the blood, they capture it, and then they sprinkle it on the altar, verse 5 there, and then the priests get the skin, uh, and then they cut it, in, in, and the offerer has to cut it into pieces. And then the whole thing, and then they clean the insides, and then the whole thing is burnt by fire. And obviously, fire speaks of purification, holiness. The Bible says our God is a consuming fire, and his holiness is like a fire. It's like a refiner's fire, which, you know, takes out the pure, you know, the impurities out of metal. And so when an animal is offered, and then there's this sweet savor, you know, God doesn't really care about the smell of, like, a good steak, right? But he cares about the heart, like I talked about with Abel, right? And that there's a transference of, like, that animal being consumed is a chemical reaction, right? The cells are being oxygenated rapidly and turned into smoke and gases and, you know, the byproduct, like ashes, right, carbon. <clears throat> and so, but it, the, the aroma to God, the symbolically is, you know, that this person did it with a willing heart and he gave the best of what he had. And, you know, the, the washing speaks of, you know, the inwards, what it eats, and, and the legs, you know, where it's gone, that those things would be cleansed. Um, 
before it would be offered. So it would be just more purification, and water was a purification for them. So the symbolism is pretty clear there. And then the other thing that's important is, you know, we kind of went through the offering up of the, the, like a bull, is that a person could also bring a goat or a turtle dove. And it just showed that God wasn't really, didn't really care kind of the cost of it, right? But relative, uh, relatively, if a person had more, they could offer something that was costly to them, a bull, right? Um, an entire bull. Or if someone was relatively poor, they could offer a turtle dove, right? Or in, somewhere in between with a goat, right? Or a sheep. And so all God, again, making provision for his people. And, you know, it think, makes me think of the widow's mite, right? The woman who gave a couple uh, mites of, was all she had. In God's eyes, that was as important as someone who gave just a little bit of what they had, right? But she did it with her whole heart. She gave all she had. And maybe for some people, a turtle dove is all that they have, right? Um, whereas the rich person looks at a turtle dove with all his flocks and says, what is that? But God doesn't really, that, that really, the economy, our economy and how it benefits us isn't really what God cares about. And so I think there's this equal playing field between rich and poor. God is no respecter of persons, the scripture says. In other words, God doesn't care what you've done in your past, what you've accomplished, how much you have, all that you have to show. It doesn't matter to God. We, he sees us all equally. And you know, that's where we came, that's where a lot of the ideas of the early forefathers of this country came from, was that God sees people equally. He sees them the same, that he's no respecter of persons. And when we all stand before him, we're all going to have to give an account. It doesn't matter our cultural background um, or our economic background. We all have to give an account in, a sa in the same way. And so all these things speak of, you know, symbolically, really towards a life of faith for the, for the Jewish person in the Old Testament. Um, that the life of faith and that God had provided them a temporary covering and offering for them. But I think over in Hebrews, we're going to kind of shift gears here and look at the type. And I think over in Hebrews chapter 10, it helps us to kind of see this. And that the type starts to become more clear, the type of Jesus as this burnt offering for us. Because, again, all of these offerings were they were supposed to look forward to a better sacrifice, that one day there would be something God would do to better fulfill this sacrifice in a way where it wouldn't have to be done all the time, in a way where it, it would not only cleanse this earthly temple of our bodies, right, to be able to, like, in, in, in those days, like, they had to offer their sin offerings first before they offered the burnt offering, right? They had to be cleansed from within, right, Bo bodily. They had to wash their hands. Before, the priests had to wash their hands before they're doing anything. Um, and there was all these rituals and rites that they had to do. But Hebrews talks about a, be a better cleansing of eternal things, of the heavenlies, and that heaven itself would be cleansed, that we could then be there forever, and it all comes down to a better sacrifice 
uh, in Jesus. So in Hebrews chapter 10, um, in verse 5, Therefore, when he came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you have prepared for me. In burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin, you had no pleasure. And then I said, Behold, I have come. In the volume of the book it is written of me to do your will, O God. Previously saying, Sacrifice and offering, burnt offerings and offerings for sin you did not desire, nor had pleasure in them, which are offered according to the law. Then he said in verse 9, Behold, I come to do your will, O God. He takes away the first that he may establish the second. By that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. So Jesus here is put forth as this better sacrifice that is given for us. And we see here that God never really wanted, he never wanted sacrifice in the sense of he didn't really care for the animal dying, right? It's not like God was, uh, took pleasure in that part of it, right? The animal actually dying except that it looked forward to this, to Jesus, except that it was done with the right heart. It was done as a pleasing sacrifice by the right faith in the person doing it. And he says, but a body you have prepared for me. This is a quote from the psalm speaking forward of Jesus as the Messiah, you know, speaking to the Father, saying, you know, a body you have prepared for me. God gave him a body. And this, you know, Jesus was seen slain before the foundation of the world as a lamb slain before the foundation of the world in the Father's eyes. This was all part of the plan to begin with. And so Jesus had this body, and he offered it to do God's will. And so in the burnt offering, what we see fundamentally, is Jesus doing the will of the Father by offering himself. Now, there's other types that come out here, and we can kind of um, just breeze through them quickly. Um, But I think sometimes, too, it's good to see other examples uh, other examples in the scripture I mentioned with, he, with, with Abraham offering his, his own son. That was an example of the done right. Um, but also with Saul, we see it done wrong. We see it done with the wrong heart. That Saul offered up a sacrifice and Samuel said to him, in Samuel, 1 Samuel fifteen twenty two, Hath the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices? As in obeying the voice of the Lord, behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to hearken than the fat of rams. So Saul wanted to go and make an offering with the people. Um, You know, he was all, he had disobeyed the Lord and not killing the Amalekites as God had commanded him. And then Samuel called him out on that, that he disobeyed. And Samuel continued to insist, let me go with the people and sacrifice, because he was, again, this distortion of what sacrifice was for is like to be seen to do it by the people and to kind of be holy in God's eyes because of what I've done. No, that was the, not even the point. 
And I think with Jesus, we see that obedience that Saul didn't have. We see it clear that he came to do the Lord's will, as it says here. I come to do your will, O God. That he wanted to do the will of the Father. And Jesus himself said, as John records, I always do those things that please the Father. I and the Father are one. And Jesus came doing the will of the Father. And the will of the Father was that he would be offered as a sacrifice. And so he came into the world to die. I mean, we all die, but Jesus didn't need to. He came into the world to die. And I think um, with Jesus, we see a few things if we compare it. In addition to this fact that he gave himself fully in obedience to the Father, and that's the real picture here. Yes, he loves us, but really he did it for the Father's will. And God gave his only begotten son. Why? Because he loved us, right? And so God the Father gave his son with love. And the son obeyed the father first because of his love for his father, right? And that, that love that's in the, the Trinity, that's very difficult for us to comprehend and understand. But yet God himself offered himself, right? But there's other types here that, um, that kind of come out. Um, the identification, right? So the, the killing of the, the bull or the goat or the... Turtle dove, you know, all those things, right? The identification with us, we look at the cross. And what is our view of when we see the cross? Is it someone put Jesus there? Someone put Jesus there and they should be, you know, held accountable? When Jesus, or yeah, when Jesus was speaking to Nicodemus and he gave that verse, John 3.16, for God so loved the world, and he spoke that to Nicodemus, he also mentioned about Moses lifting up the serpent in the wilderness, right? You guys may have remembered that story where there was a brass pole with a snake on it. And as the people looked at that brass pole, they they were delivered from the curse of being bitten by an actual poisonous snake. And that God had sent these poisonous snakes to their midst because of their sin to judge them. And they could just look at this brass pole with this cursed snake and be delivered. And it was, again, a picture, because Jesus even called it out there in John 3, a picture of the cross. Um, and as we look to the cross, we see our own sin on him and the curse there, but also the wrath of God being poured out upon him for us, substitution, that we should be up there in a sense. But that was the judgment of all of man's sin for all time upon, the man, upon a man. And so this identification, and so we look to the cross for our own forgiveness and cleansing. There's the type, that, the, one of the other types there. And again, the death. So Jesus dying on the cross, he gave up, he gave up his ghost, he said, you know, into thy hands I commit my spirit. But before that even, all of his blood was shed, right? He was whipped and, you know, crown of thorns on his head, and all of his blood was poured out. And as I mentioned, all of us put Jesus on the cross. It wasn't just the Romans. It wasn't just the Jewish leaders who kind of manipulated things to get Jesus condemned with, with uh, Pilate there. 
the, the, it wasn't all Jewish leaders, but it was the Jewish leaders who had rejected Jesus as Messiah. Um, but it wasn't just the Romans. It wasn't just the Jewish leaders. It was also Peter. It was also me or you, that we needed him there. And his blood was poured out once and for all for the wrath of God was being poured out on him. And I mentioned that he was consecrated, he was offered in obedience to the Father, that he was, it says in Hebrews chapter 1, verse 3, that who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, meaning he was God, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down on the right hand of the majesty on high. So he did it himself in obedience to the Father. And he was, it was the consuming fire of it all that he offered himself completely and that God's wrath was completely poured out on Jesus. And I don't think we'll fully understand the pain and suffering that he went through. Only, I think that, that that's a thing that we can only see from afar off and just wonder at, that Jesus took the sin of the world on him. We could never comprehend that because we weren't innocent. And that was another, that was another um, type here that Jesus is, this was uh, a male without blemish. Jesus was, was innocent, right? Pilate looked at him. Couldn't find anything wrong with him. Judas looked at him. There's nothing wrong with this man, yet he still betrayed him. The, the, uh, the Jewish leaders couldn't find out anything wrong with him. No one saw anything wrong with Jesus. The, he only did those things which were right. He was always fulfilling the law. He did everything right. They couldn't find anything wrong with him, and yet they put him to death. And so yet, and he was being consumed, in a sense, by the wrath of God so that we could have eternal life. And I think, you know, what does this mean for us all, right? What does all this mean? How does it apply to us? I think it comes back to our attitudes. That our attitudes, if we think that when we come and we worship here together, or when we do, you know, we spend time with the Lord, like, what is our attitude towards the Lord? Is it something where I'm doing these things to kind of satiate a bloodthirsty God, like a pagan God, right? Or I think I'm pleasing him because I've done all these things. That wasn't the attitude that Paul, or that the writer of Hebrews spoke of. In Hebrews 13, 15, he said, By him, therefore, let us offer the sacrifice of praise to God continually. That is the fruit of our lips and giving thanks to him, to his name. So the attitude is not one of, you know, I'm doing things to earn God's favor and earn God's blessing, and so I'm going to do A, B, C, D, E, F, G, and if I do them really well, God will be pleased with me. No, that's the pagan distortion. The attitude is one of, I'm so thankful. I'm so blessed that I can even be here, right? I shouldn't be. And I think a realization of that I just, like, God's wrath, that, you know, God's wrath without a realization of our own sin looks horrible, it looks like the worst thing ever, when, and it looks like a terrible God. But when we realize our own sin and what it really means, I deserve that. That's the, see the difference in attitude there? And so the only thing out of the I deserve when you know you're not going to get it because of what he's done as a sacrifice is 
Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for doing this for me. It's an attitude of gratefulness in our hearts, an attitude of worship. And so I think, you know, with all this, this uh, the symbols and the types, I think what we, we gain out of it is it should impact our attitude, the way we do things. And <clears throat> the more we know about these things, the more it's going to unveil the darkness of our distorted thinking and set us free from that. And I think, too, when we come to Christ for the first time, there's a realization of this is me that put him there. This is the, the identification thing. This is me that put him on the cross. And until we have that, that need, there's a need for a Savior, and then there's a, I did this, we'll never get to the right attitude of thanks and praise and blessing. And I think, you know, when you look at the life of Paul, for him it happened on the road to Damascus. He, he saw Jesus. He realized that he was the one that put him on the cross. He was the one that was persecuting his own people, his people. And he was like, what do you want me to do, Lord? Here I am. What do you want me to do? You know, you got me. <laughs> and I think all of us probably came to that point in some times of our lives if we truly believe in Jesus. But I think some of us may not have, and we need to be born again of God's spirit. And so let's close in prayer. And if you want that, and if you've never really been born again, and you've never really experienced that, just repeat in your hearts with me. Father, it is my sin that put you on the cross. And uh, Lord, I deserve the wrath of God. But you've given us, you've provided a sacrifice, Lord, like you did for Abraham, that we don't have to die, Lord. And we don't have to die eternally. And I thank you for that. And I thank you that you've given new life to me and to us. And I ask you to come into my heart. And Lord, fill me with your Holy Spirit. And Lord, help me to understand these things, not the way the world understands it, but by the Holy Spirit, Lord. Thank you for making a way. Thank you for just given us this fellowship with one another, this connection, Lord, as you've done this for us. And thank you that we have, we, we don't have to look forward to wrath. You've delivered us from the wrath to come, both for this world and for the second death. Thank you, Father, for eternal life, and thank you for um, new life in Christ. Help us to live in a way that's worthy of that work that you did on Calvary, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.